Amen, amen. Hey, this morning we are going to spend the majority of our time in Genesis 22. If you want to go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 22. We're continuing our journey to Easter, uh, taking these uh, stories and these characters from the Old Testament and then reflecting on them and really seeing the role of Christ in these various stories uh, throughout our Bible, many of which we are intimately familiar with. We've heard from the days of doing flanograms and all these various things. And so I hope that there is an, an encouragement to you in these. And my prayer each week is that God would give you the ability to, to hear these things anew and afresh. I know that sometimes uh, when you hear somebody tell the same story over and over again, you have to mentally prep yourself. Oh, this is the one where Grant's going to tell me about the real value of a nickel and how we don't value anything anymore. I just need to go, mmm, mmm, mmm. Right? Well, that same thing happens to us sometimes in church. We, we check out. We, we think, oh, this is, the one about, uh, this is the one about the fleece. Yeah. This is going to have a prayer application in the end. Yeah. He's going to tell us to quit trying to test God. Yeah. Should have set that reservation for later. I wonder if I could text from my watch. This is a scribble pad. Oh, man. I'm not good at this. Don't do that today. Put your watch down. Uh, put your phone down. Let me pray for us once again as we prepare to reflect upon God's word. Father God, I'm thankful that your word is fresh and new, that your spirit is alive and vibrant as your word goes out, bringing application to our hearts. So God, would you do that in our midst today? Would you enliven us with your word? Would you challenge us anew? Help us not to sit back and think, uh, this is a story I've heard before, or I know this one, or I know where it's going, or I know how it ends. God, you are taking us to a new place. You are doing a new work in our hearts today. God, we are encountering you afresh, your Holy Spirit bringing your word to our lives in this moment, and we've never been in this moment before. So God, those needs we have that Justin was hitting on earlier, those those wants, those desires, those hurts, those sins, that anger, that frustration, would you expose those things by the power of your word, and would you draw sin from us like the poison that it is, and would you bring us healing through the power of your word, would you apply your word richly, effectively to our lives, to our hurts, to our sin, and that we might be found growing closer to you, submitting ourselves more fully to you. God, do not let us leave this place the same as we entered. Do not let us leave this place holding on to sin, to anger, to frustration. But God, allow us to leave this place transformed and changed. God, for those of us who are spiritually dead, would you make us alive? For those of us who are lost and wayward, chasing after sin, would you awaken us to the reality, to the gravity of sin, and would you draw us closer to yourself? God, we are thankful for your instruction for this time that we have together today. God, I pray for clarity, I pray for conviction, and I pray that our lives will be changed as we encounter you through your powerful, living, breathing, vibrant word. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to be uh, looking at examining the story of Abraham and Isaac out of Genesis chapter 22. 
But if, if you've never heard who Abraham is, if you've never entered into this story before, then this seems to, to you to be a, a person with no context, with no background. And so I want us to just kind of quickly go through some things in Abraham's life to give you a little bit of context. Flip over to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 is really the first time we begin to be introduced to a man named Abram at this time, whose name would later be changed to Abraham. And we find that he's been living with his father. He's been living in his father's house, but God comes to him and he calls him from this place. Look at 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram, God takes and he says, listen, you are going to be the conduit by which I'm going to extend my blessing to humanity. But there's a problem. We read in chapter 11 and verse 30 that Abram is married to a woman named Sarai, and Sarai, his wife, is barren. So you've got this couple, this man who's 75 years old, and this couple who is struggling with infertility, and God goes to them and says, I'm going to bless everybody in the world through you. And he looks at his wife, and he looks back at himself, and he thinks, well, how's this going to happen? But he trusts the Lord. He trusts the Lord. That God is going to take this improbable, infertile couple, 75 years old he is, and he's going to bless and change the world through this couple. He's going to do something amazing. And it's going to require for Abram, for Abraham, to put his faith, his trust, and his confidence in the Lord. Flip over to chapter 15. Look at verses 1 through 6. God has sent Abram out, but now he's going to reconfirm his promise to him. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So we see Abram go outside and God says, look at the sky. And so he looks up and the vast expanse of the sky is covered in a myriad of myriad of stars. He says, count them if you're able. He says, so shall your offspring be. To this childless couple struggling with infertility, God gives this promise again, so shall your offspring be. In verse 6, we read that Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram's belief in the testimony of what God said was reckoned him as righteousness. Now this, this child, Isaac, we read of the story of his birth in chapter 21, 
about how he is finally 100 years old and his wife 90 years old, and she gives birth to their first child. And he rejoices. So here he is, and he and his wife had had sought to fulfill God's promises on their own by Sarai introducing to Abram her handmaiden Hagar, and that didn't go very well, and God sent Hagar and Ishmael away. But here he is. He finally has the child he's been waiting on. He's rejoicing. 25 years of promise, 25 years of waking up thinking, will my wife be pregnant? Will I see the testimony? Will I see the promises of God realized? In 25 years on, the word, the promise, the sure word of the Lord is realized for them. And he realizes the word of the Lord as he stares into the face of his child. He loves him. And he adores him. This child of promise he's waited 25 years for. This child of promise that will be the key, the vehicle, the transformative agent whereby the grace of God would flow. All of humanity receiving the grace and the favor of the Lord through this line. The line went through Isaac. And it's with this backstory that we come to this vexing story This vexing account in Genesis chapter 22. See, all these things had transpired. Abraham had sent Ishmael and Hagar off. By this time, Isaac is a teenager. And look at how it begins. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. So God submits these things to Abraham as a verification of his belief, as an insurement of, of the faith of Abraham. It's not that God didn't know. It's that Abraham needed to see his faith revealed again. So God tested Abraham. He says to him, Abraham, Abraham responds, here I am. God says, take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now I want to remind you that this is the son of promise, the son he's waited 25 years to see, and the son who for now for the last 10, 12, 15 years that he's been able to watch grow up, he's been able to see the promises of God realized in this boy as he grew up and discovered faith in God through the faith that Abraham exercised. And now what God was telling him is I want you to take this son, your only son, Isaac, The one you love, the one you care for, the one you waited for, the one I promised to you, the one from whom the blessings of the entire world depend upon. I want you to take him, I want you to go to Mount Moriah, and I want you to slaughter him, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. You see, when God said to him, I want you to offer him as a burnt sacrifice, it's not just this idea of bringing him him in, laying him down, and saying, you just stay right there, I'm going to light this thing on fire, and it's going to be all good and well. When God says, I want you to offer him as a burnt offering, what this entails is that he has to go in, he has to cut his son's throat, and he has to chop him up, and he has to lay him on the pile, because this is what we do to sacrifices. He found the thing that was dearest to Abraham, and that's what he asked him to sacrifice. He found the thing that he'd waited for, 
his entire adult life. And this is what he said. This is what I want from you. Are you willing to worship me? Are you willing to sacrifice your best for me? And the question that rolls through my mind over and over again every time I see this is how could he? How could Abraham do this? You see, he's not some fictitious character made up on a page that's devoid of emotion. He is a man who has waited on his son, and in his son he sees the fulfillment of the future. And in this son are tied up his emotions and his hopes for his son's future. And so on this son, he takes the word of the Lord, which is to sacrifice him. And to this son, his heart as a father is breaking. He trusts in his faith. So the text tells us amazingly in verse 3, it says, so Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cuts wood for the burnt offering. And he rose and he went to the place where God had told him. We see no hesitation. The text doesn't tell us that the next morning God sent a servant in to rouse him to say, Abram, it's time to wake up. It's time for you to offer the sacrifice. And he says, no, let's do it tomorrow. What we read instead is that he rose early. He's faithful. He doesn't hesitate. He grabs the things necessary. He grabs his boy and they head out on this journey. It's not a short journey. The text tells us in verse 4 that on the third day. So they've got the donkey, they've got the wood, they've got the two servants, they've got Isaac, they're walking along. And finally the third day of this trip hits. They've been watching the horizon. They're seeing the mountains rise in the distance. And every day that Abram walks and every step he takes, he knows he's getting one step closer to offering up the very best in his life as a sacrifice, as an offering to the Lord. And every step he takes away from home and every step he takes closer to the mountain is one step closer to his boy no longer being there with him. And so the question rolls over and over again in our minds. How can he do this? How can he be this strong? What is he resting on? And we recognize he rests solely on his faith in the Lord. So from on the third day, he sees the place far off. And then Abram turns to the young men. He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go there and we will worship. And then we're going to come again to you. See how he describes what he's going to do? If God were to come to you and to say, I want you to offer me your best. I want you to give me the thing that you hope for, the thing you long for, the thing you place your identity in. I want you to extend it to me. Could you describe this as worship? Or would you like me describe this thing as obligation? Would you like me describe this thing as a must and a necessary? But certainly it doesn't feel like worship. He says, we're going to go there and we're going to worship. We're going to come back to you again. So Abraham takes the wood of the burnt offering and he lays it on his boy. Isaac gets to feel the weight of the wood on his back. 
And Abram takes in his hand the fire, and he takes in his hand the knife, and the two of them begin to walk up the mountain together. You can see them there. Abraham leading the way, he's got the fire, he's got the knife. Isaac struggling behind him underneath the weight of the wood, trusting his father. Abraham's picking his way up the hill, and Isaac is placing his feet right where his father's feet had been, trusting his father. Step after step after step, they rise upon the mountain together. Verse 9 says, And when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there, and he laid the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He lays him there. He's on top of the wood. The question from verse 8, rolling again and again in Isaac's mind. Isaac had asked his father, where will the lamb be? Abraham's response was that God would provide for himself a lamb. But here Isaac lay. Here Isaac lay, bound, on top of the pile. And Moses spells out for us verse 10 in slow motion. He says, so Abraham taking the knife in his hand. And we see his knife reach up. And we recognize the placement for this knife is headed towards his son. And in this moment, he has not hesitated. And in this moment, he has not faltered. And in this moment, again, the question comes to us, how could he? Where does he draw strength? Where does he draw his faith? And as Abraham prepares to bring his hand down in descent to slaughter his son, we hear a voice cry out. Verse 11 says, But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. Now I want you just to see the urgency there. It's not an angel of the Lord appearing before him, but a voice cries out from heaven. From heaven, all of the angelic hosts gather to watch. God peers down to see that moment of obedience. And from heaven, what we hear is Abraham, Abraham, a voice cried out in haste. A voice cried out in urgency, and he responds, here I am. And the angel says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. There was no pause in Abraham. There was no delay, there was no fault. The moment he drew his hand back and began to bring it down, the angel cried from heaven and interrupted his obedience. And then the angel takes over. He says, I have seen your faith. I know that you fear the Lord. You see, the test from Abraham in some sense was whether or not he actually worshipped God or he merely worshipped God to get what he wanted from God. 
We see this over and over again throughout our lives. The idea that we are waiting for something from the Lord. We're waiting for something from the Lord that we desperately want. But will there be a change when the Lord gives us what we want? Or will we continue in faithfulness, worshiping not what was given, but worshiping the one who gave the gift? But God knows where Abraham stands now. Abraham was ready and willing to offer his son to be obedient to the Lord in this demonstration of his faith. His name is called out, Abraham, Abraham. And he interrupts what Abraham was going to do. In this moment, you can imagine Abraham has heard the voice of the Lord cry from heaven. He's trembling and he's shaking, recognizing what almost happened. And in that moment, he looks up and there is a ram caught in a thicket nearby. So Abraham goes and he takes the ram and he offers it up instead of Isaac, his son, as a burnt offering. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. The text tells us, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So the angel of the Lord says to Abraham a second time from heaven and says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Do you remember back in chapter 12 and verse 3? I'm going to bless you and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Look at how he fulfills, look at how he utters that promise again. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. I got to tell you, I've read this a number of times. I remember hearing this uh, as a kid, I remember growing up and hearing the story and just thinking, so it, it ended really well, but for a moment, if you're Isaac in this story, you're thinking, that was a close one. And I started thinking about this, this relationship and started thinking about Abraham and, and, and this question just over and over and over again. And how could he? Is, is it just obedience? How, how, could he, how could he do this? How could he enter into this thing? How, how could his faith be such that this would be what he would be willing to do? But there's a key. There's an interpretive key that's so incredibly helpful that if we leave it out, the story really doesn't make any sense. The author of the book, or the letter to the Hebrews, in chapter 11 and verses 17 through 19, supplies us this key. He supplies us the key for understanding exactly what's happening. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he 
who had received the promises was in fact in the act of offering up his only son, drew the knife back, of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham knew if the blessings of the Lord are going to continue, they have to flow through Isaac. God has already said they're not going to go through Ishmael. They have to be through Isaac. Verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, Abraham's faith and trust in God was so strong. He was so sure that God would fulfill his promise concerning Isaac, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him, that the families of the earth would receive blessing and favor through his line and through Isaac, that he knew even in obedience, God would still fulfill his promises. So how he got there was saying, even if I slay my son, God is going to raise him. Because God's word is true. Because he is faithful to his promises. Because he has been faithful and true to maintain and to hold his promises for the 115 years of Abraham's life to that point. And he would be faithful and true to keep Isaac from permanent harm. What does our faith look like to the Lord? You know, we recognize that God did not spare his son. At the final moments before Christ was crucified, God did not look down from heaven and say, listen, I'm just going to take one of these two thieves on either side of the cross. But we recognize from Romans 8 and verse 32, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. You see, when we come to take the supper together, we reflect upon the sacrifice of Christ. And it's this reflection upon the sacrifice of Jesus from where we draw strength and we recognize in the midst of these things, God has saved us. That he saved us from our pride, that he saved us from our adultery, that God has saved us from our lies, that he saved us from our enemies, that he has saved us from from ourselves to himself. Where you sit today, God has saved you. If you do not yet have a relationship with Jesus, if you've not confessed your sin and fallen upon Christ, then the offer for you stands that he can save you. God can carry you through. In the midst of the difficulties of life, the lost loss of our loved ones, the loss of our jobs, the loss of health, the loss of the ability to stand without pain, and the loss of all things, we recognize that what gives us the strength isn't our own ability. It is Christ in us. And we draw so much strength from that. 
It allows us to not grow in pride, but to stay humble because we recognize that every difficulty that we overcome, we've not overcome in and of ourselves. We have overcome because of Christ who is in us. And Christ who is in us is who we celebrate in the supper. We recognize that as he headed to the cross, and Jesus took the disciples aside, and he was preparing them for his departure. And he was speaking to them about what life would be like without him. He recognized that this, for them, would be a significant defeat. That Christ's own death to the disciples in the hours following would feel like to them a significant setback, a loss. Like evil had won. Even in all his telling to them that the Son of Man had to be handed over, that he had to suffer and die, but on the third day he would rise again. He needed them to find their faith. He needed them to find their confidence in his resurrection. So that when Christ rose again, when he rose from the grave and he rose on that third day, what we saw in the disciples is lives transformed. They went from cowering in a room, wondering when the authorities would break in and find them and disrupt their gathering. They went from there to a boldness to stand for Christ. They went from a place of cowering to finally when they were beaten and thrown in jail, they said, finally, we are able to suffer for the cause of Christ. They saw a great rejoicing when they were able to suffer because in their suffering, they were further united to Christ. We see his suffering in his blood. We see his suffering in his body, which is broken for us. We see and experience his suffering and the setbacks and the difficulties of life. And we experience him, especially in the difficulties that he allows us to go through. You might have felt like over the last year and the last months that your faith has not been strong, that it has been tattered, that it has been abused, that it has been wrecked. Lean not into your own faith. Lean into the faith of Christ. Christ who is in you. His Holy Spirit giving you strength. His Holy Spirit giving you guidance. His Holy Spirit carrying you through. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we prepare to take the supper together? God, we thank you that you give us this opportunity to reflect upon the sacrifice of your son. And God, in so doing, we reflect not just upon his death, but we look forward to his coming again. That great day when the sky will be peeled back that great day when we will see him face to face. But God, for some of us, we feel so incredibly burdened and tired right now. It's 
So God, I pray to that person that you would increase their measure of faith from your son, Jesus. God, in their weakness, would you give to them the strength of your spirit? God, in their humiliation, would you cause them even more to identify with Christ and the shame and suffering of his cross. And Father, we pray for those who have not yet submitted themselves to your Son. God, that you would break their hearts, that you would call them unto yourself. And that you would save them and transform them, moving them truly from death to life from darkness to light. And God, we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.